Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 16th of January 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Garrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, uh, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border, and Mark Anderson from the USA. And we'll also be joined uh, today by a surprise guest. Uh, David, let's get straight on then uh, with COVID issues. Yes, many important things in the world of COVID uh, have happened in the last few days. So we start off with uh, news from the United States from uh, Extremely American Worldwide magazine. Dr. Joseph Fryman calls for withdrawal of Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccinations following new research. This is a Louisiana-based doctor who's uh, also been involved in research on COVID-19 and other health issues. He says it's time to halt the administration of Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccinations until new clinical trials prove the benefits from the vaccines outweigh the harms. And we have a video clip of him saying just that. Hello, my name is Dr. Joseph Raymond. I'm an emergency physician based in Louisiana. In addition, I am a clinical scientist. I was the lead author of a peer-reviewed study that reanalyzed the original Pfizer and Moderna clinical trials for the messenger RNA COVID-19 vaccines. We found the vaccine increased serious adverse events at a rate of one in 800. At the time of publication, my co-authors and I did not believe our single study warranted the withdrawal of the messenger RNA vaccines from the market. However, since its publication, multiple new pieces of evidence have come to light, and this has caused me to reevaluate my position. An article published in the BMJ regarding the FDA's own observational surveillance data found the messenger RNAs were associated with multiple of the exact same serious adverse events identified in our original study. But the FDA had failed to inform the public of these findings. In addition, now we have multiple autopsy studies that find essentially conclusive evidence that the vaccines are inducing sudden cardiac deaths, yet the rate of these vaccine-induced deaths remains unknown. While many nations that have been using the messenger RNA vaccines have experienced an increase in excess mortality, more people dying than should be expected from past years. And this correlates in time with the initial vaccine rollout and then with the subsequent booster campaigns. Nations with higher messenger RNA vaccine uptake have correlations with higher rates of excess mortality. While the cause of this excess mortality is not known, Researchers analyzing this data were unable to identify any other reasonable cause of the excess death other than the vaccines. Given now that Omicron variant is less virulent and is able to evade much of the protection offered by the vaccines, this creates a situation where the benefits of the vaccine have been dramatically reduced in, for hospitalization and, and death. Together, this information calls into question if the vaccine's benefits are outweighing the harm. I believe, given the information, the messenger RNA vaccines need to be withdrawn from the market until new randomized controlled trials can clearly demonstrate the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the serious harm we now know the vaccines are causing. And there you have it, uh, precise, reasoned, rational, evidence-based, um, factual information from uh, an expert in the field um, calling for the vaccines um, to be withdrawn. And he is not alone. 
Uh, we have here a tweet from Dr. Asi Malhotra um, highlighting that an eminent, world eminent cardiologist, Professor Alab Dolgada, uh, calls for suspension of the mRNA jab because of cardiac harm concerns. We have a video of this as well. In spite of the unprecedented support that has been given to COVID-19 messenger RNA vaccination, that is actually uncomparable to any support given to any pharmaceutical agent in human history, we are still hearing sounds of wisdom coming from different parts of the planet, actually calling for uh, or questioning the scientific foundation and uh, safety of the messenger RNA vaccination. Uh, if we go back to April 1948, where the uh, WHO has been established and review the main theme of uh, establishment of this uh, international organization, we can see clearly that the uh, psychophysiological well-being of uh, human species is the major priority and uh, improving quality of life for a human being is actually a critical issue. Uh, in spite of uh, what we are hearing from the media, but going to our uh, scientific foundation and questioning the uh, complications of the messenger RNA vaccination, uh, I'm referring mainly to, uh, as a cardiologist, to the cardiovascular complications, the uh, juvenile myocarditis and pericarditis, and uh, the, what, we, what we think seriously increased level of uh, sudden cardiac death. I think uh, anything related to the mRNA uh, products uh, should be reviewed critically and in the view of the cardiovascular complications of this type of vaccination. I think this type of vaccine should be suspended until it is fully investigated, uh, our global consciousness should uh, rise up and uh, wisdom at the end should prevail. So a, to a top man of international standing calling on wisdom to prevail and the jabs to be suspended. Um, in the more mainstream view, well, we've got a tiny amount of information uh, coming out uh, from the likes of the CDC in America. Here we see on uh, MedPage today, CDC and FDA flag early signs of stroke risk with bivalent COVID vaccine. But they then go on to say that one surveillance system has detected potential link in seniors, but multiple others so show none, and agencies found no link in further analysis and are not recommending a change in COVID-19 vaccination practice. So they're trying to let a little information out and say it's all okay, this line cannot hold far too many Top experts worldwide are coming out and saying the evidence is overwhelming. We need to stop this. I wonder how long before this starts getting reported in the mainstream and before um, MPs in our country can mention this without being hounded out of their party or out of parliament. Well, these are good questions, David, but unfortunately I suspect uh, uh, the mainstream media is not going to mention this. They have... Uh, placed their line in the sand, they've doubled down on their position, and how can they possibly walk back from that at this stage? Well, they'll find it difficult, but the people who are actually responsible for, for rolling this out, for giving it uh, the tag safe and effective, for not only encouraging, but actually coercing the population into, into taking this, they're in, a, in a, a position where I can't see how they can, they can actually reverse themselves because careers will be ruined, fortunes will be lost, and some people might end up serving time behind bars where the truth to become public knowledge. That's what they're facing today. Um, now, this is obviously relating to the amount of harm being caused by the vaccines. 
And uh, there's a campaign ongoing at the moment called Truth Be Told. It's going all around the UK, started off in Edinburgh. Uh, it's been organised by Fiona Hine, and we have some video here starting with Fiona uh, taken at uh, Edinburgh event, which uh, started outside St Giles Cathedral and marched down Princess Street after that. COVID Vaccine Victim Awareness Month. I'm speaking to those who are injured and those who are bereaved. There's heartbreaking stories, and there's so many of them. There's been over 474,000 reports. That's 474,000 people have reported injury to the MHRA yellow card scheme, but it's less than 10% are, are reported. And GP surgeries, doctors, hospitals are actually suppressing the MHRA yellow card scheme. They tell you that they can't rely on it for their data. But if you ask any member of the government, any doctor, what is it that our government rely upon? to test safety and to see early warning signs of any danger of any medication is the MHRA yellow card scheme. So to say it's unreliable is absolute nonsense. They don't want this truth to be out. So today we are telling the truth, the truth that needs to be told. And this is of course an excellent point that uh, when, when pressed on the yellow card scheme and the number of reports to that scheme, the government, the, the, the MHRA, etc. they say, well, it's, 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 anyone can report to the yellow card scheme. Uh, it's, we don't really know what this means. Uh, you know, it, it could be an overestimate. They make all of these attacks on the scheme, right? And the same people when say, how do you prove that the vaccines are safe? They say, oh, well, we've got this wonderful system that proves the safe. It's the, it's the yellow card scheme, and it monitors what's actually happening. So it's in the one hand, the scheme's rubbish when it shows a warning sign. On the other hand, the scheme's marvellous when they're looking for justification that they are actually doing their job. Um, we have another clip now. This is Kayleigh uh, Hannan, uh, who has suffered vaccine, vaccine injury, speaking out at Edinburgh. Um, my name's Kayleigh Hannan, I'm 37. I was never against taking the vaccine, but I was never fully aware of everything that involved. I actually took mine because my kids holiday had been cancelled that many times that I felt like I was over a barrel that they were finally going to get to go to Disneyland and I felt responsible to be able to get them there. For my three-year-old to come through and ask me if I needed help to go to the toilet or if I needed help to get out of my bed was soul destroying. And that continues on now. And to be honest with you, I feel like we've been left. I finally got my appointment with rheumatology. And on paper, in writing, my rheumatology consultant confirmed that she believed I also had reactive arthritis because of my COVID vaccination. On paper. And uh, also from Edinburgh, we have now a video of the testimony from Alex Mitchell. I went and did what I thought was the right thing. On the 20th of March, I got my AstraZeneca. And on the 1st of April, I experienced calf issues. And on the 11th of April, 21, I was amputated from above the knee. And at that point, within eight hours of being amputated, I was informed that it was vaccine-related. As I say, I wanted to finish on something that's very important to me. Children. Now going for your children, folks. A child has a 99.97% chance 
of being okay with this virus. There is no necessity, there's no scientific data to show that these are safe or reliable for anyone, never mind children. I'm not here for your sympathy. I'm not here for your pity. I don't need that. What I do need is your voice and your support. So, um, a call for voices and support, and we're very uh, pleased and, and delighted to be joined today uh, by Fiona Hine, uh, who organised that event and is organising other events across the country, including a, a, a culmination uh, of, of, of this campaign in London. Uh, Fiona, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, so I understand that the London event is going to be the, the high spot of this and is going to, uh, uh, you're going to be getting more media coverage and uh, you're going to be making a, a, a real big effort to get the message out, get the truth out about the harm that's been caused and the people who are suffering because of vaccine injury. Uh, could you tell us more about uh, the event you have planned? Yeah, so London is obviously the pinnacle event of the campaign and, you know, you showed the video there from Edinburgh and I just wanted to say about the people that are speaking and the people that are supporting this campaign, both injured and bereaved, the overwhelming sentiment is that they're doing it because they don't want further damage to be done. You know, they're not doing this for pity and for sympathy. Um, and with the rollout being for six month old, so it's really important that we continue to send the message about the dangers of the vaccine. But giving a voice to the injured and bereaved is obviously paramount. Um, a lot of the rallies that we're doing are, are community-based and we're engaging with the community and handing out leaflets. But London is more of a public display, uh, a display sorry, you know, mass non-compliance and sending that message to the mainstream media and the government. Now, I've got a, no faith whatsoever in the mainstream media that's, you know, that will suddenly do a U-turn. But we are seeing more and more credible experts speaking out and calling for the suspension of the vaccine for further testing. You know, I don't agree, and I'm sure you don't, that the vaccine isn't a vaccine by traditional standards at all. Um, but this is about humanising those statistics as well, because there are people losing their lives, people having serious life-changing injury. Nothing will be the same for them again. And at the moment, it looks like they're just statistics. And the mainstream media is clearly playing this died suddenly, sudden adult death syndrome, trying to disconnect from any culpability or responsibility. So London is a huge public event that really we hope to send a message as we did last January with the NHS uh, rally that I organised, um, send a message to the government and to the mainstream media. And I hope to see that it's reported on, but I don't have that much faith in them. And uh, where and when is the event taking place? Um, it's at 1pm outside the BBC, Portland Place. Uh, closest tube station is Oxford Circus. Um, so it's right smack outside sort of some of the root of this evil and the censorship. Um, so we plan to make some noise outside the BBC, but then we will be um, having a silent memorial procession down to um, number 10 Downing Street, where we'll have another public display of mass non-compliance, essentially. Okay, Fiona. Okay, well, it'll be fascinating to find out if the BBC actually uh, notice or uh, admit they notice your presence outside uh, outside their offices. They seem to have a remarkable ability not to see what's right in front of them. Well, they did. <laughs> the thing is, you know, we saw photos come out last time when we were um, in January uh, last year with the NHS rally, but the BBC are already asking questions about this campaign. They are attempting to interview some of the injured and bereaved members of the community. 
um, that have chosen to take the vaccine and they are going to be coming out with a hit piece, I think this week, maybe a couple of days before the rally, with the intention to discredit it and anyone that they think might be involved. So we've seen what's happened with Andrew Bridgen, with Asim Malhotra. Um, so I should imagine that will be quite an interesting article that we're going to see this week with the aim to discredit the work that we're doing. Right. Uh, Fiona, if, if I may, you've, you've answered uh, part of my question because I was going to ask you about mainstream media. Um, so if you've had that response from the BBC heading towards a hit piece, and I can believe that, what about local newspapers? Have any local reporters been in touch? Well, one of the reasons I've started this campaign is, and I'm sure you're aware, you, you would have seen it yourself, is that I watched um, Safe and Effective by Mark Sharman um, and Oracle Films, Philip Wiseman. And I was kind of inspired by that because this film was, it was, there was no way it could be discredited, but I knew that it wouldn't get talked about. It would be entirely suppressed and then eventually banned from YouTube, which it was. Um, fantastic response from independent media, of course, and, you know, UK Column is the most unbiased and informative independent media news channel that we have that I watched early on in 2020 to do most of my research. Um, so there will be some independent media there, but I'm kind of leaving. Mark Sharman worked for Sky TV and he was his job, mainstream media, for 30 odd years. So we're hoping that with some of the groundwork that we've done, that we do get some coverage um, for in the mainstream media and from the independents, which we will. It should be live streamed by Children's Health Defence on the day as well. Yeah, thank you. David. Uh, just a final, final question. Uh, are there uh, any speakers you'd like to uh, highlight that, that are coming along to, uh, to, to, to address those who, who turn up outside the BBC's offices? Yes, well, of course, we're focusing on giving a voice to the injured and bereaved. So predominantly you'll hear those voices from people that have lost loved ones or suffered injury. But we will have people speaking who have effectively been advocates for the injured and bereaved. So Matt Letissier will be there speaking because he's been speaking out for a few years now and is an amazing support to the community. Um, we've got Dr. Christian Buckland as well, who's a psychiatrist. And I think there needs to be an understanding of why people uh, chose to take this vaccine. It was coercion and manipulation and fear mongering, as we've seen in the mainstream media and our own government. So we do have a few um, additional speakers. But the main theme is to give a voice to the injured and bereaved and change the public perception of vaccine injury. Uh, Fiona, thank you very much for that. Just one, one more time, the, 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 the date, time and location for anyone who wants to come along. 21st of January, 1pm this Saturday, outside the BBC on Portland Place. And the closest tube station is Oxford Circus. Brilliant. Great. Fiona, thank you very much. I hope you can join us later in the programme for extra. But till then... Thank you very much for that report. Thank you. Yeah, excellent. Right, so uh, that takes us to Mark. Well, it takes us to Mark Anderson. And of course, Mark, exactly the same situation in America. Uh, no doubt, under the auspices of Dr. Joseph Mercola, uh, there's this relatively new video out, Anecdotals. It's uh, well over an hour long and it, gets into uh, the fact that many of those thousands, in fact, that have been injured by these jabs, I, I really lay off on using the word vaccines as much as possible because there's legal reasons not to call these things vaccines. But many of those that have taken these jabs are suffering, as we've been hearing, uh, uh, life-altering, very serious um, 
uh, reactions. And I've got something here that I can share that kind of sets the stage. And I believe we have a clip from Anecdotals, the video. But here, here we're seeing the film Anecdotals provides a glimpse into the lives of people who have suffered significant adverse reactions from COVID-19 shots. And much of this text does not use the word vaccines, but and that's important. Those who spoke out about their shot-related injuries have been shamed, ridiculed, and labeled unethical. Those injured by the shots have been largely abandoned by the mainstream medical community and the mass media cartel, I might add. Their medical issues have been politicized while society provides no empathy. Moving on, while, while with no programs in place to help those injured by the COVID-19 shots, and many doctors afraid to even acknowledge the shot's connection to patients' symptoms, many of those harmed have nowhere to turn for help, and the film calls for an open dialogue and a movement from humanity to acknowledge the risks of COVID-19 shots, as well as those who are suffering due to them. So uh, that kind of sets the stage. I believe we probably have a clip from Anecdotals. Yep, let's play that. I'm not anti-anything. I don't want what I'm experiencing to have some sort of political bent. I just want my story out there so I and others like me can get the help that we are entitled to. This is not political. This is a human issue. And many other people are getting sick and no one is willing to step up and help us. And so it's usually someone says like, Oh, really? Which one did you have? And I'll say, oh, I got Pfizer. Oh, that's strange. My husband got that one and he's fine. I'm like, yeah. And so did a lot of my family members and they're all totally fine. But some people are not fine. And by the time I got to my car, I noticed that my face was burning and tingling. I can't feel my face. The first time I said those words was 10 months ago. The last time I said those words was two months ago. But I'm one of the lucky ones. I, I went to the emergency room probably 15 times. I was a father. I'm a 16-year-old son. My government lied to me. They said it was safe. The vaccines are safe. I promise you, they are safe and effective. The president promised a safe and effective vaccine in record time, and President Trump delivered. These are safe and effective. Vaccines are safe, effective, and free. I have facial paresthesia and nerve pain for the last five months. Paresthesia is a word that I'd never heard of a year ago. But now, it wakes me up every morning. Severe, painful paresthesias, which are burning, tingling. The people who are not getting vaccines, who are believing the lies on the internet instead of science, it's time to start shaming them. What else? Or leave them behind. One word describes how I felt in the first few months after my diagnosis. Abandoned. Yes, indeed, that provides uh, kind of an emotional look at at the uh, the issue, and uh, much could be said. Um, the director of this uh, production, Jennifer Sharp, is among those who suffered from debilitating symptoms after the shot, including facial numbness, electric shock-like feelings, and muscle weakness. She opted not to get a second dose of the shot. Notice how the word vaccine is never used after experiencing the serious adverse events after the first dose and lost her job as a result. And uh, so much could be said about this. Uh, the issues are, are all over the place. Um, 
For okay. instance, just one other quick item I'll share on this. One case involves Maddie DeGuerre, who was a healthy 12-year-old when she signed up for Pfizer's COVID-19 trial for 12 to 15-year-olds. Get that. This is about the trial. She suffered a severe systemic adverse reaction to her second dose of the shot. However, and she struggled through 11 ER visits and four hospital admissions in the year and a half that followed. Injuries from the shot have left her unable to walk or eat. She receives her nutrition via a feeding tube, and she's suffering from constant pain, vision problems, tinnitus, which is a hearing issue, allergic reactions, and even a lack of neck control. And this is from the, uh, the trials themselves. And there's also information in this anecdotal production about um, people who were actually involved directly in the trials. And that includes the testimony of Brooke Jackson, a regional director formerly employed by Pfizer's subcontractor, Ventavia Research Group. And she saw horrifying shortcomings and negligence and all sorts of other problems. So I, I definitely encourage UK column uh, viewers to uh, see the whole video and decide for themselves, along with other things that UK column already has posted on, okay. on this issue. Mark, if I so, can just... Mark, if I can just come in, I, I pulled out an, uh, yeah. an extra slide for you because I was fascinated with the comment here by David Healy, MD, psychiatrist, um, psychopharmacologist, scientist, professor of psychiatry. And this was the little quote that I heard in the film, and I, I, I found it fascinating. In my opinion, and he's talking about vaccine damage stories, the vaccine damage stories that you will hear are more plausible than the fanciful explanations you might also hear. I thought that was a very powerful and concise statement by that uh, psychiatrist. Yeah, it is. There's there's sort of a premise behind anecdotals that sometimes anecdotal stories can, can reveal more things than getting lost in the minutia of uh, t uh, you know, tedious research, although the research obviously is needed and not all adverse reactions reported to MHRA or, or bears in the states are necessarily VAX-related, again, using the word VAX very loosely. But uh, one thing I would, I would just add as a quick observation, um, these mass jabs are the same principle as water fluoridation. They're based on the idea that a treatment is so good, is so beyond reproach, that the individual aspects, individual risk aspects, that is normally used for like prescription drugs, are cast aside and ignored. You know, normally someone on an individual basis is examined and it's determined, yes or no, he or she should take this prescription drug, for example. But with fluoridation put in the mass water supply and with mass jabs like this, individual vulnerabilities are not even taken into account. It's, assu it's assumed that entire age groups can all have this or that jab and that there's minimal to no risk and that the benefits are gonna be just so wonderful. That whole allopathic medical premise needs to be questioned, not just the jabs. I wanted to make sure to get that in there. Yeah, That's uh, an extremely good point, Mark. And uh, I've got a little bit of an eye on the clock, so forgive me for that. But we also just want to highlight that you've, had, uh, you've got two really good articles up on the UK column, New Pandemic Dress Rehearsal. So if people haven't read that, they should do. And uh, we've also got this one, who another COVIDocracy agencies 
working towards 2024 world pandemic treaty deadline. Um, excellent articles and uh, really encourage viewers to, to have a read of those. Okay, well, let's uh, move on then and public order. And the public order bill is progressing through Parliament and Rishi Sunak has decided that he's going to put an amendment in. Uh, and this is going to allow the government to do, broaden, as they define it, the legal definition of serious disruption. And that's going to give the police more flexibility, greater clarity over when to intervene to stop a disruptive, a disruptive minority. These are their words, a disruptive minority from disturbing things. Let's have a look and see what uh, Rishi has to say about this. The right to protest, David, is a fundamental principle of our democracy, but it's not absolute. A balance must be struck between the rights of individuals and the rights of the hardworking majority to go about their day-to-day -day business. Uh, and he went on to say, uh, we cannot uh, have protests conducted by a small minority disrupting the lives of the ordinary public. It's not acceptable, and we're going to bring that to an end. So that's what he had to say. And then here's Sir Mark Rowley, Common Purpose, uh, who's currently the Met Commissioner, saying the Met has a long history of policing protests, responding quickly and effectively to incidents involving crime. Uh, and where serious disruption is caused often in challenging situations. It's for Parliament to decide the law, uh, and along with other police chiefs, I made it the case for a clearer uh, legal framework in relation to protest, obstruction, and public nuisance laws. Uh, we have not sought any new powers or cur uh, to curtail or constrain protest, but have asked for legal clarity about where the balance of rights should be struck. So, David, we have no absolute rights. There's a balance to be struck. Uh, but the problem is, uh, who is this majority that's being disturbed so much? And surely if, uh, you know, if, if people have an issue they want to highlight, the best way to highlight that, since the mainstream media is quote, quite so aggressively uh, anti any uh, counter narrative at the moment, uh, is to protest. You would think you know, more on that at the moment. Um, so his, his point is that, <laughs> for his, for a start, absolute rights. I discovered this talking to a policeman outside Holyrood a while back. We only have two. They're not allowed to kill you, allegedly, and they're not allowed to torture you, allegedly. Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, putting every, locking everyone in their homes for 18 months, is that not torture? But that's those are the absolute rights uh, that we apparently have. Everything else is, is conditional. It depends on something. And uh, what this policeman's saying is it depends on the will of Parliament, and the will of Parliament is uh, virtually absolute. Um, this is obviously a definition of tyranny. And he's, he's seeking clarification, so he doesn't know the law. The police actually don't understand the law. That would imply that Parliament's not done a terribly good job at actually defining it, I suppose. And I've got to say, David, the other bit that goes with this is a couple of weeks ago we were reporting... Um, that it had come to light that government money was being used to actually fund a lot of these protest groups. And that was covered That was covered on a whole range of media. It disappeared very quickly, but I haven't forgotten it. So we've got government systems, government finances, ramping up some of the disruptive protests like Stop the Oil. And now, surprise, surprise, we've suddenly got the means of dealing with those sorts of protests which are clamping down on further I believe freedoms. if you go back uh, in past UK columns, you'll find that that's exactly what the, we said they were going to do. But uh, David? And, well, one other thing we should highlight at this point is the politicisation of the police. 
because the police are now asking Parliament for guidance as to how they should how they should apply the law. They're asking for political guidance. They're asking for guidance as to which which protests are allowed and which are not. It's nothing to do with the law. It's to do with politics. It's to do with what's an acceptable speech and what's unacceptable speech. So we so, no longer have free speech. We have acceptable speech or we have banned speech. Uh, let me just uh, ask you about that statement a second. When did the role of the police change from being uh, primarily about keeping the peace? The police in the past have been there to facilitate protest. I mean, with the exception of things like the minor strike where they were absolutely politicized, but that's that's another issue. But the, the traditional role of the police is to keep the peace and that's the limit of their role. Well, this is right. I mean, in Scotland, you could probably trace it to the, the formation of Police Scotland, uh, at, at least, certainly since then. Uh, in England, I'm not sure. It's It's been creeping on for so long, I hardly know. Yes. Okay, well, let's uh, go to Scotland then and continue with uh, protest, and in this case, with respect to gender. Okay, so there are many things that the Scottish people are not happy about, and they're starting to find a voice outside Parliament. Amongst the things they're not happy about, we have here Mail Online, uh, reporting that Scotland will let pupils change gender aged four without their parents' consent and tells teachers not to question a child's request or, um, to choose a new name or a, use a different toilet. It is, in fact, much worse than that. Uh, it's not only without the parents' consent. Uh, if the child so, so indicates, it's without the parents' knowledge. And what's more, a four-year-old or a six-year-old or an eight-year-old turning around and saying that they're actually not a boy but a girl and, and putting themselves on a path for puberty blocking drugs and mutilating surgery, that it says in this document, this guidance document is not a well-being concern. But if you as a parent find out about this and are concerned and are questioning whether this is a good idea for your child, that is, in the eyes of the Scottish state, a well-being concern is profoundly wrong-headed and people are catching on. Um, other people are catching on. We have here someone who used to be SNP but not, a, not anymore. She says the, uh, we need the union to protect women. Well, actually, we need people to protect women because I don't know that any of our parliaments are going to do too much, but it is worse in Scotland and that's what she's alluding to here. She says, now wild horses wouldn't drag me to a yes tick box. So she's looked at the SNP and the administration and what they're doing to attack women, attack children, and she's saying that under this under this rule, uh, independence with this team running the country would be horrendous. It would be a disaster, and she's just turning her back on it. Now, uh, there was a protest at Holyrood on the Thursday uh, the 12th of January. We have a still here from it. Um, uh, hundreds of people, around about 500 people, turned up in a... In a wet and blustery Thursday afternoon in January to uh, protest outside Holyrood. It was an excellent event. There was lots of speeches. I was uh, fortunate enough to be asked to, to say a few words there. And we'll, we'll be putting the speeches up on uh, the Northern Exposure YouTube channel. I, I have a very short clip uh, of uh, the start of my speech at uh, that event. Ladies and gentlemen, we stand today outside an ugly building. Yeah! that's promoting ugly ideas yeah. from ugly sources. Yeah. And I go on for some time explaining just what the ugly ideas are. 
Now, this was actually picked up by the uh, excuse for a newspaper in Scotland called The National. It's actually an SNP fanzine, but it pretends to be a newspaper. Um, and uh, they reported what happened at the anti-gender reform protest at Holyrood. So the first mistake they made is it wasn't an anti-gender reform protest. This is people coming together across a range of issues. Sex ed, the attack on families, uh, the attack on women's um, rights, women's only, women's um, exclusively female spaces, the, the, the nonsense of the gender reform, the forthcoming um, uh, 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 conversion ban bill, the whole um, cultural Marxist soup that's being, that's being um, flowing out of Hollywood for years. So this is a lot of people coming together and they know why they're coming together. They're coming together to protect the society that they grew up in, to protect their women and to protect their children. This is why they're there. The National doesn't know this. It said hundreds of anti-gender reform protesters gathered outside Scottish Parliament to call on the UK government to step in and stop the gender recognition reform bill. It's about much more than that. Members of the Scottish Family Party, Unionist Club Scotland and supporters of the Glasgow Cabbie, a campaigner who's previously expressed scepticism about the safety of COVID-19 vaccinations on social media, how very dare he, waved union and suffragette flags and held signs calling on Sturgeon to resign. So they then went and did some interviews with the small counter-protest, um, which was an LGBT counter-protest. Uh, and the National said, uh, comedian Andrew uh, Scott Agnew um, said that the anti-GR sentiment being expressed by the protesters was emblematic of where Scotland was in terms of LGBT rights. He said, quote, we've got this strange ragtag group of anti-vaxxers, crystal-fascist religious fundamentalists, anti-abortionists, and apparent supporters of women's rights all banding together. Now, I point out here, you can sense the confusion and anxiety in this attack, right? What he's actually looking at are the Scots, the Scottish people, ordinary Scottish people, banding together to protect the, the society that they grew up in. That's what they're there for, and he doesn't know it. He said, it's a lot of angry people, and I'm not sure for certain about what it is they're angry about. Um, the result is an increase in hate against LGBT people. That's, that's nonsense. What he doesn't understand is that, is that alphabet people have been used as a battering ram to destroy society, and the people who are gathering together are there to protect society. They're not introducing hate against anyone. They're protecting their children. They're protecting their daughters, their wives, their mothers, their sisters. They're protecting what they grew up in and what they considered to be home. Indeed. Uh, David, for me, the other interesting thing about this is the fact that they've used the quote, well, they're quoting uh, comedian Scott Agnew. I don't, I don't know this person or what their form of humour is, but um, to me, this is another sign that they don't know how to deal with this because why aren't they using a government, government minister to quote? Why aren't they... Uh, using a member of the local council to quote. Why is it they've got to go to a comedian? Did they not have anybody else who was brave enough to stand up and say something? Um, well, apparently not. I mean, the comedian said, um, uh, his final line on that, uh, th this is the most divisive thing you could possibly do when you actually try to stop the operation of a working parliament. Now, no one was trying to do anything. It was just a peaceful protest, zero arrests, entirely peaceful, outside of Parliament. That's what we're meant to do to get our grievances addressed. So 
you, you see that he's viewing everything in a kind of hyperbolic terminology. It's all, oh, they're, they're actually shutting down parliament. They're going to suppress freedom. Um, they're going to... Um, what was it, be Christo-fascist religious fundamentalist, right? He's imagining all sorts of things, but it's all in his head. None of it's true. And he doesn't actually understand what the majority of the nation are feeling. And neither does the government and neither do they care. But I think they are concerned, and I think this idea about shutting down parliament indicates a, a, a sense of anxiety on the part of those pushing this agenda, that they realise they've been rumbled and they're not sure how to respond mm -hmm. because they don't have the ability to win the argument. They just have the ability to bully and force their way to a conclusion they want. If it actually comes down to debating the issues, they're in serious trouble. Yeah. Okay, thank you, David. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share material on the various platforms. Uh, now, we just want to say uh, well done to all the presenters and everybody concerned for the Education Not Indoctrination event yesterday. It was uh, it very well. It was yes. powerful and, and emotional in places. Um, videos from that, individual presentations will be going up on the UK Column website in the coming days. Uh, David, any just quick comments on it? Well, I thought it was a fantastic event. I mean, it was there was a lot of variety in the speakers. There was a, a many different viewpoints, and and that really gave a a, a, a rounded uh, approach to the subject matter that we couldn't have got in any other manner. So I was delighted with the way it went. I thought the speakers were excellent, and uh, I know the the audience reaction was extremely positive. And I hope that people who didn't manage to watch it live will pick these up. Uh, we'll be putting these these uh, various talks out as individual videos so they can be watched and rewatched and circulated. And uh, we hope people will do all of those. Yeah, okay, quick uh, advertisement for Fernethi. So the Fernethi conference is on Sunday, Sunday the 22nd of January. That's for the Fernethi ladies who, who attended that school, uh, which was run by uh, Glasgow Corporation. Um, many interesting things for that. The next slide gives a, a, a quick agenda there. Uh, you'll see that we have um, amongst other things, we have a talk on uh, all the research that we've done on this subject, which is uh, a fascinating story. Uh, we've got John Halley, uh, uh, an, an advocate who, uh, was with, who, who was part of the Child Sexual Abuse Inquiry, and uh, he'll be speaking about uh, how he interacted with the state and the corruption that he encountered. And uh, we'll be hearing many things from the Fermetti ladies themselves, and this is going to be an excellent event. It's, it's four people who have been associated with Fornethi. Uh, the next day we've got the, uh, on the 23rd on Monday, we've got a general UK column meetup, once again at the Glow Centre in Motherwell. Uh, Brian is uh, going to be speaking at that, as is Bruce Scott and uh, Richard Lucas. And uh, I'll maybe say a few words in between times. Uh, so that will be an excellent event. That uh, starts at, the doors open at 6.30. The event starts at 7 on Monday the 23rd. And finally, and finally, there's a rally in Glasgow on uh, Saturday, 21st of January, 1 p.m. Glasgow Green uh, at the Commonwealth Monument. That's where it departs from. And uh, with a bit of luck, Brian and I will um, go along. 
Okay. <laughs> Transport allowing. Yes. Uh, tanks. Uh, well, before we get to, uh, to the subject of tanks, this is the uh, latest news that the German defense minister had resigned. If we pop her on, can we pop her on screen? Yeah. And um, uh, this is a very interesting uh, situation. Sorry, let's, pressing the wrong button there. Let's bring this on. German defense minister Christine Lambrecht has resigned following persistent criticism of her handling of military modernization programs and the country's arms deliveries to uh, Ukraine. So uh, this lady goes. Um, probably people have suspected she's been on her way out. Um, but what's going on here? Well, I think that she's basically the full guy for the years of neglect and decline of the German military. Now, I'm saying that from the position that um, we, we would hope we don't need all the military. But if we just look at what has happened to the German military, it's certainly been neglective and it's shrunk and it's shrunk to the extent that really, is it capable of doing anything, the German army in particular? No, that's the same situation in UK. So she's perceived as being weak and they're blaming all of this on her. But of course, it's the time when the agenda is more heavy weapons for Ukraine. So that was my reaction when I initially saw this article this morning. If uh, we follow it up with where the BBC went, I think we get the answer. German defence minister resigns after blunders. And here it is. It, um, it comes as Berlin comes under rising pressure to allow the delivery of G German built battle tanks to Ukraine. Ms. Lambert was mocked for an announcement that Germany was supporting Ukraine by sending 5,000 military helmets. I don't know why she should be mocked. Didn't we send a load of old ambulances, Mike, at yes. one stage? She was also widely criticised for failing to improve Germany's notoriously ill-equipped armed forces. So this lady absolutely hammered. Um, but the end of the article said this, it's not yet clear who will succeed Ms. Lambrecht in a job which is considered such a poison chalice that many refer to it as the ejector seat. And of course, um, what's coming here is that the only people they want in that job, in that empty seat, are war hawks who are going to ramp up the war in Ukraine. And of course, tanks are needed because at the moment it's going very badly for Ukraine. Uh, indeed. So let's come on to the issue of the tanks then, because the saga continues. We showed this graphic on Friday, but uh, it's absolutely uh, appropriate. Now, before we get into the main part of this, uh, we thought it was appropriate once again just to show uh, the clip that we showed last week of uh, Tobias Elwood, because it's still very relevant. So just have a quick listen to this. Do you agree with Professor Clark that we, the UK should be sending these tanks and more? Oh, yes, uh, absolutely. This is our war, but we've left the Ukrainians to do the fighting. It's not just the morale, uh, you know, the, the moralistic issue here. It's the fact that Russia is now pushing this against the wider West. So I very much welcome the fact that we're now sending or thinking about sending main battle tanks. It does show how far we've come in our willingness to look Putin in the eye and not be spooked by his rhetoric. I hope we will now see other main battle tanks, the Abrams, for example, the German Leopard. This is what Ukraine needs if it needs to be able to sort of regain and hold territory and push Russia back. OK, and your expectation would be that if the UK moves, it'll just be the first mover because others would follow. Well, absolutely right. And it, we have been too risk averse. We've lost that Cold War statecraft to look at Putin in the eye. We need to recognise we should not be leaving this 
to the Ukrainians. It, absolutely, Russia is up for this fight. They can endure hardship much better than the West. They're retooling civilian industries. They're uh, mobilizing tens of thousands ready for a spring initiative. We need to be thinking about what 2023 means to us. So the message there is that uh, he believes that when Britain moves, everyone else will follow. So let's look at the uh, statement that the uh, that the number 10 has issued today on this or over the weekend. Sorry, the prime minister is set to accelerate because accelerationism is what we're living through at the moment. The prime minister is set to accelerate the UK's diplomatic and military support to Ukraine in the weeks ahead in a bid to push Russia further back and secure a lasting peace. A flurry of UK diplomatic activity will take place across the globe this week after the Prime Minister directed senior ministers to drive, to drive international action as we approach the first anniversary of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in late February. Uh, UK defence and security officials believe a window has opened up where Russia is on the back foot due to resupply issues and plummeting morale. We can talk about that in a second. Uh, the Prime Minister is therefore encouraging allies to deploy their planned support for 2023 as soon as possible to have maximum impact. Uh, sending Challenger 2 tanks to Ukraine is the start of a gear change in UK support. A squadron of 14 tanks will go into the country, so it's now been confirmed we are sending them, that's the number 14, in the coming weeks after Prime Minister told Zelensky uh, that the UK would provide additional support to, UK, to aid Ukraine's land war Around 30 AS-90s, which are large self-propelled guns, operated by five gunners, are expected to follow. The Defence Secretary will set out further details for the support in the House of Commons on Monday. That's today. Uh, in the lead-up to the one-year anniversary of the invasion, the Prime Minister will seek to demonstrate the UK's power as an international catalyst with influence across NATO, the G7, the Joint Expeditionary Force and elsewhere. So, uh, basically... What's happened here? Tobias Elwood's told Number 10 what to do. He's given instructions. World Economic Forum policy, uh, probably. But I just, I mean, well, I could say a lot of things. But where he says uh, that the Russians have, have come against the West, well, I don't remember that being the case. I remember the case that the trouble started between um, Russia and Ukraine in Russia defending the separatists. And it was only when the West started to pump in the arms that this thing has, has become a sort of NATO engagement. David, watching your face on that one, just before we move on a bit with more on this and what's happening in Ukraine. Yes, I mean, I thought the Elwood speech was just egregious. It was the most outstandingly dangerous piece of warmongering I think I've ever heard. And uh, the particular particularly creepy was a suggestion that the Joint Expeditionary Force, a, a, a kind of NATO light, uh, should uh, now include Ukraine. Um, and the admission that we were fighting a proxy war and we should own up to this. And it's our war. This this is folly of the worst type. Um, it, it, if anyone's not heard that uh, speech or heard that clip from uh, which we played, I think, last Wednesday, please do so. Yeah, you're uh, as we are, David. You're struggling a bit to uh, explain what what's actually happening here. Uh, I think part of the problem is that we now have um, silly. I'm going to call him a silly man. Elwood is a silly man. He is believing the propaganda that's pushed out by 
by the West and the UK government at the moment. So his picture is becoming totally clouded of what he thinks is going on. Let's just have a look at this Guardian uh, report on the tanks. Tanks are apparently going to help Kiev break the deadlock. 14 tanks of which I suspect two will break down very quickly. Another one or two will break down over the coming weeks. The rest of those tanks are apparently going to defeat the Russians. Uh, but let's have a look at what they have to say in this. And uh, here immediately there's the attack on the Russians based on nothing. So I've highlighted here, while the rate of fire from Russians are, Russia's artillery is declining as it faces shortages of spare barrels and some munitions on the battlefront. There is no evidence of Russia's fire dropping off. On the contrary, we're seeing more and more artillery pieces coming in from the Russian side. Uh, the article goes on to say that, of course, we need to field these tanks in sufficient numbers. Um, uh, uh, but also they're talking about the light infantry vehicles that are being provided, such as the Bradley, uh, fielded in sufficient numbers, these vehicles would protect the Ukrainian troops from artillery while they advance and help to knock out Russian armor and bunkers. This is complete nonsense because, of course, they are light vehicles and artillery will destroy them. So this is a Rusi-based article. It is nonsense. Uh, we'll just give you one more paragraph here. Um, it's, uh, it's talking about the fact that uh, the West is giving up its um, reserves of equipment and ammunition as donations to Ukraine begin to push into critical fleets and stockpiles. However, Ukraine's partners face the need to invest in regenerating their capability as well as supporting uh, Ukraine. But the reality here is that US, UK, NATO, the EU don't have sufficient armoured vehicles to change the war. And they also don't have the manufacturing capability to um, produce those vehicles. So Elwood, we've got another little uh, audio of him here, Mike. Yeah, so this is the second clip. We, all, we showed this last Wednesday, but it's worth yeah. uh, considering it again because, uh, uh, and David's made a couple of these points, this issue of uh, Britain becoming the sort of the, the guiding light for the rest of the world to tell the rest of the world what to do is just incredible. But it's this admission about a proxy war. Let's have a quick listen to this. The Russian Security Council secretary uh, has just been talking about basically saying Russia is now fighting NATO in Ukraine. It, it, it should, should, should that uneasiness about the, the sort of perception of that just be gone? Should it, should... I'm, I'm sorry, who are we being warned by? We should not listen to this uh, rhetoric. We should have more confidence in ourselves to stand up to Putin. This is the theater of operations is in Ukraine. We should be stepping forward. NATO offense, uh, essentially has been benched. We should be doing far more to put this far out. And we're not doing that. You know, further on the strategy side as well. We should be looking to establish a weapons factory in eastern Poland, for example, so they can procure their own equipment. What does it mean for the UK's military readiness? We give, I mean, 12, we're upgrading the tanks. Do we need tanks or are, we, are they only ever going to be used in this form of proxy warfare? Well, you're right that there is, we are now absolutely involved in the proxy warfare and we should raise our hands to that. We should also recognise that the world 
is getting much, much more dangerous. And we are still on a peacetime defense budget. And the last integrated view that took place a couple of years ago actually slashed our capabilities in our army, our Air Force and our, and our Navy. It's due for, to, you know, to be resubmitted, to be reviewed in a couple of months' time. We need to increase defense spending for, to 3%. We've entered an era of insecurity. That's where we're going now. The idea that this is just going to, and you know, the you flames in Ukraine will then die down and we'll all go back to normal is completely wrong. So complete nonsense coming out the head of an empty vessel there. Dangerous, very dangerous nonsense. Ramping up the idea of an expanded war from a country that can't produce its own defences. The British Army at the moment incapable of putting more than 20,000 people on a battlefield and unlikely to do it as far from home as Ukraine. But let's look in contrast to uh, Tobias or in parallel with Tobias, um, what is being said by Ukraine's defence minister. Now, this is a this is a little video clip from a couple of days ago. It's um, Alexei Reznikov talking to Hugo Pachiga from the BBC. Um, let's have a look at this clip and hear what the Ukrainian says. Have you, have you got all the weapons you need for, for the next phase? You know that uh, if you have war, you will not have enough every day. But we have a lot of modern NATO standard weaponry. It means that Ukraine as country and uh, armed forces of Ukraine or uh, our sector of uh, security and defense became the member of NATO de facto, not de jure, but de facto, because we have a weaponry, we have the understanding how to use it, uh, we have uh, this uh, interoperability level of the communication with our partners, and uh, I'm sure that in the uh, next future we will become the member of NATO, the Jure. Well, that's a controversial statement. Uh, you're saying that Ukraine is de facto NATO member. Why controversial? It's, it's true. It's a fact. I'm a lawyer, you know. I, 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 I'm, I'm operating with the facts. But uh, the, the perception has been that any kind of, let's say, tanks being sent to Ukraine would be seen as an escalation by Russia. You're not concerned about how Russia could respond? I have a war in my country. What kind of, of escalation level should be more? They striking, they hit it, hitting my cities, my hospitals, my kindergartens, my schools, and they killed a lot of civilians, a lot of uh, children, they are uh, army of rapists, murder, and looters. What, what the next level of escalation? They're here in my country. So, David, the immediate question, who is the most dangerous, the fool, Tobias Elwood, or the man that you've just listened to that doesn't understand where this war could go? Mm. I mean, the, the point he made, that, the, that he's de facto NATO member, there is an element of truth in that. It's not the whole nine yards because the the, the red line is um, major elements of American or other NATO forces actually operating against the Russians on the front line. That that red line won't be crossed anytime soon, it would seem. But um, in every other regard, he's correct that um, 
he has interoperability, he has training, he has the equipment, he has the command and control interaction with NATO. Very, very largely is correct. Now, do you then get to the folly or wisdom of that policy? Now, that policy um, we've always maintained is, is, is folly in the most extreme form. Not only does it risk um, massive um, a massive death toll and the risk of, of, of nuclear or other escalation uh, between the West and Russia, but it will, it will end up in the demolition of Ukraine as a country. Mm. The longer this goes on, the worse it's going to get. And the, the lack of, of any drive towards a peaceful settlement um, is striking. No one, no one's talking peace. No one. Yeah. David, thank you for that. Well, I just wanted to comment on the BBC reporter conducting that interview because when I went to have a look about him, what do we discover about this gentleman? He is simply a spokesman for the Ukrainian side. So I've just picked out a few of these, um, but uh, we've got him talking about Russian and um, Wagner forces, Wagner forces here and the advances in Solidar. Uh, but he goes on to say, um, Solidar is not under the control of the Russian army, a Ukrainian military spokesman said. Uh, if we go to this one, the Ukrainian defence minister told me, if we are here last week, Ukraine's spy chief told me that Russia's airstrikes would continue. President Zelensky says Russia is likely to intensify its attacks. Um, Ukraine's military spy chief, uh, Badanov, told me last month. Uh, officials say a hotel in the centre of Kiev has been hit. Horrific images from Dnipro. Officials say 27 people across the country were killed. Ukraine claims about a thousand Russian forces. So this is not a genuine reporter. This is a man who is simply acting as the paid spokesperson for any Ukrainian propaganda that's coming out. Got to be quick, David. A proxy? Well, absolutely. Yes, David. S stenographer. That's what <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Stenographer. Okay, we'll give you that one. Thank you. Now, of course, here's the latest sort of BBC headlines. Uh, Russia fires new waves of missiles at Ukraine and hits energy infrastructure. And of course, there's a focus on damage to a civilian building. We're not going to get into that at the moment or who was actually responsible for it. Um, but what I want to contrast this is it, we've been constantly told that the Russians are running out of weapons. So this is October 2022. This is March 2022. This is November 2022. This is October again, Russia running out of ballistic missiles. November, Russia is running out of ammo. Uh, Putin could be running out of missiles. That was May last year. Uh, that was back in May, quite right. August, uh, Russia's running out of Iskander and Caliber missiles. So consistent lies and propaganda by the Western media over the Russian weapons stocks. And why can Russia produce these weapons? Because it's taken trouble to look after its industry, whether that's right or wrong, that's what they've done. But the BBC giving the public a pack of lies. And I suspect that uh, uh, Tobias is simply living a world of these lies, which is why he can't make a sensible decision. 
But what does the BBC not report? And it's this critical piece of information. In the latest Russian missile attacks, Ukraine's air defenses were denied advance warning from US NATO AWACS aircraft. This is the strength of NATO, or it has been, that they've had all of these aircraft around Ukraine's uh, western borders providing advance warning to Ukrainian air defenses. Suddenly that information did not get through. There were no warnings in the latest attacks. And it now appears that Russian electronic warfare systems suppress the capability of the AWACS and the airborne early warning systems to an extent that this has not been seen before. And if you want more information about this, have a uh, have a go at your own research, but I'll bring this Forbes article on screen. Russia's electronic warfare troops knocked out 90% of Ukraine's drones. So you look at that headline, you're just talking about drones, but if you get into the heart of the article, it goes on to a lot more. Ukrainians Air Force fighter pilots were the first to feel the effects of escalating Russian jamming. Uh, as Russian electronic warfare complexes began to be deployed systematically, Ukrainian pilots found they often had their air-to-ground and air-to-air -air communications jammed, their navigation equipment suppressed and their radar knocked out. So I'll just leave the audience to think about that. Uh, essentially, we are not being told the truth about what's happening on the battlefield, and this makes the whole situation of further weapons and support to Ukraine even worse. Uh, but I will pop this on screen because social media is certainly beginning to pick up now on Zelensky. And I couldn't resist putting this one up. Angel of death. I don't think it's far off. But of course, the main attack is this is the angel coming, begging for money at every opportunity to continue the war. OK, uh, let's move on then to Iran. And uh, the UK has decided to put sanctions on Iran's prosecutor general, Mohammad Jafar Montazari. Uh, and uh, well, this is all coming as a result of the execution uh, of this man at the weekend. That's al Akbari. Now, he is uh, British or was British Iranian. Uh, he served as uh, Iran's deputy defense minister between 2000 and 2008. Uh, and he was arrested as a spy for MI6 in 2019, was convicted and sentenced to death, and that execution was carried out over the weekend. So we just put him back on screen there for a second. Uh, James cleverly had some words to say. He said the prosecutor general is at the heart of Iran's barbaric use of the death penalty for political ends. Sanctioning him today underlines our disgust uh, at uh, Akbari's execution and our commitment to holding the regime to account for its appalling human rights violations. Uh, now, we, no matter what we think about the death penalty or whatever, the, the fact of the matter is uh, the Iranians decided that they had evidence uh, for him being a spy. And part of that evidence was apparently uh, payments of 1.8 million euros on one case, 285,000 pounds in another case, uh, $50,000 in another case, amounts of money that probably uh, beyond most Iranians. So apparently he had no explanation for this. And in fairness to him, he, however, always denied uh, his uh, act alleged activities. Now, uh, I just wanted to remind everybody that, of course, Britain has been uh, operating within Iran for a very long time. And one of the sort of famous uh, cases recently was Zagar, uh, Zagar, um, Zagari. Nazadine Zagari Ratcliffe, sorry. Uh, now, she was subsequently released uh, having served time in prison in Iran 
uh, and under house, house arrest in Iran for allegedly uh, interfering. A subversion, I believe, was the main, uh, the main allegation against her. Now, this was related to uh, her media activities with Thomson Reuters Foundation and the uh, BBC Media Action. Uh, and if you remember, uh, this is Monique Villa uh, from the Thomson Reuters Foundation who said at the time that the charges were linked to her work at BBC Media Action and the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Uh, this is complete invention as the Thomson Reuters Foundation doesn't work in Iran and has no programme or dealings with Iran. It was mainly her work in BBC, with BBC Media Action that was the issue here. But if you remember Boris Johnson, who was Foreign Secretary at the time, uh, had this to say, when we look at what Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe was doing, she was simply teaching people journalism, as I understand it, at the very limit. But we have been, and Brian has been talking about the activities of BBC Media Action in countries right across the world, Iran, Syria, uh, Kazakhstan, all kinds of places, uh, there to foment regime change Ukraine, in these countries, and Ukraine as well, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, you know, there, there is clear evidence of British involvement uh, to uh, bring about regime change in Iran. Now, let's just look at this report here from Media Landscapes talking about Iran uh, and talking about media development organizations in Iran. And they said that BBC Media Action used to work in media and communication Iran through training and long-term mentoring. Uh, at the moment, it's no longer operative in the country, and Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, a dual British and Iranian citizen, is currently in jail in Tehran because of previous work with the uh, organization she'd been sentenced to five years in prison for allegedly plotting against the Iranian government. Uh, that will we'll continue with this. Now, of course, she was released following uh, massive intervention from the British government, uh, but Consortium News here was uh, back in 2021 talking about leaks illustrating in alarming detail how Reuters and the BBC, two of the largest and most distinguished news organisations in the world, attempted to answer the British Foreign Ministry's call for help in improving its, quote, ability to respond to and promote our message across Russia uh, and, quotes to counter the Russian government's narrative uh, among the FCO's stated goals, according to the director of the Counter Disinformation and Media Development Programme, was to weaken the Russian state's influence on its near neighbours. So, you know, evidence all around the place of the activities of Thomson Reuters Foundation and BBC Media Action, not only to push uh, British and Western narratives into those countries, but to counter Russian narratives as well. And finally, just on this final reminder, Juliet Harkin, formerly BBC Media Action, talking about Syria, talking about them, working in 2004 with individuals within the Syrian ministry who wanted change, tried them to get Get, tried to get them to be the drivers of that change uh, and saying that all media development work has been done in Syria has, in my opinion, been predicated upon the idea that there can be change from within. You have an authoritarian regime and you find who the reformers are within that and you work with them. Uh, it's quite an incredible... This is subversion. Total subversion. So it's, it's, it's got a gloss over it, but it's subversion. So, David, it's always tragic when somebody loses their lives, but our reaction to that, of course, has been to impose more sanctions uh, and effectively carry out economic war on the country. Yes. Um, and this is where we actually do need more information from what's happening inside Iran, because the, the, the British government's attempt to manipulate things, which seems to be global, I don't think there's any country really which escapes the, their overview, um, is one thing. And the actual internal dynamics within Iran and the, and the, the pressures that are building up 
because of what is, in many regards, a very nasty regime doing very nasty things um, to the people, to what is a inherently um, forward-thinking um, and quite modern people. In, you know, it's, it's not the, the 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 country of Iran, the people of Iran are not what they're advertised to be on the Western media. Uh, the pressures that are building there are very substantial. So to get a proper insight in this is very difficult because of the lack of free media either there or here. And uh, it, this is an area we're going to have to concentrate on because we need to know what's happening in this large and populous and important country. And uh, we can be sure the BBC won't tell us. Um, well, that's uh, interesting you say that, David. I can't say how or why. Uh, but we should be getting some reports from the ground uh, in Iran within the next week or two. So keep watch this. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, well, let's come back over to uh, Mark because you have been travelling to do some uh, journalism, and uh, you've you've had a trip uh, here to the Texas uh, legislature. So tell us about uh, where you've been and what you've encountered. Uh, this past Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, uh, I attended the day after the opening day of the 88th Texas Legislature and uh, spent three days there. I'm shown here um, with Steve Toth, a representative, a state congressman, and Wyatt Watson, whose hat says, make Texas a country again. And Wyatt is uh, with uh, Texas Lives Matter, and he's there and I'm there to kind of chronicle things. He's there to talk to these legislators about the lack of border security. And I've got some narrative here to share. Um, Representative Toth, he's shown in this just seen photo with yours truly and Wyatt Watson, generally agreed that Governor Abbott's invasion declaration invoking the pertinent parts of both the US and Texas constitutions lacks enforcement and that the ball is in Abbott's court, so to speak. However, Representative Toth seemed to distance himself from overly harsh criticism of Abbott's failings by noting that the federal government is chiefly responsible for the border, which technically is true. Yet Toth added that the state government will carry out security actions, such as securing metal fencing reinforced with concertina and barbed wire in high intensity invasion areas, only to find that federal border patrol agents will come along and oftentimes undo whatever security measures the state carried out. In this case, unlocking the fence gate that the state National Guard just got done locking. So, Representative Toast says the federal government does not simply fail to do its duty regarding securing the border. The federal government also actively tries to undermine whatever, action, whatever actions Texas carries out. Uh, Toth also stressed that all the laws needed for border defense already are on the books, and passing new border laws is largely, if not completely, unnecessary. That was one of uh, Representative Toth's chief um, answers to our query. And uh, he's very much in, in favor of border security, but there's this wavering on whether to call Governor Abbott out for what other critics are saying way beyond Wyatt and myself for what other critics are saying, and I've reported this before in UK column, is uh, Abbott's actual abdication of responsibility, um, many using the word betrayal, some, even, use, some even, even using the word, excuse me, treason. 
And this is, you know, uh, ranch hands and ranch owners who live along the border. It's some county sheriffs. It's uh, uh, produce growers who grow crops along the border. They're the ones using the words like betrayal and, and treason, things like that. And uh, there's also something important that Toth was reminded of here, and I'll share this next. Toth was, uh, Toth was told about this Fox report, and I, I had this on UK column last week. If he, Governor Abbott, acknowledges that there's an invasion occurring, the Constitution has plenty of provisions that not only the federal government has a duty, but the states, the governor of each state, has a duty to repel any invasion that occurs. And that's a quote originally from Kinney County Attorney Brent Smith. And we shared that with Representative Toth. And we also reminded Representative Toth of this. The next step is fulfilling the duty as the governor to repel it. And that, that's uh, another statement by Kinney County Attorney Smith. And then we reminded Toth that former Department of Homeland Security official under Trump, Ken Susanality, said that Governor Abbott should boat immigrants or move them by boat who cross into the U.S. illegally and boat them back to Mexico. So we laid this all on Representative Toth's lap. And um, again, he he agreed with much of the severity that we were uh, um, sharing with him about the border, but he stopped a little bit short of coming down real heavily on Governor Abbott, perhaps due to political pressure ideas. But uh, the guy I was with, Wyatt, is very persistent. And uh, I'll show Wyatt now uh, uh, making his rounds here in this next photo. He's uh, talking to two DPS state troopers, and these state troopers are among several we talked to during this trip who have um, spent time at the border, and they've done their rotation working the southern border with Mexico. And when Wyatt and I shared the things that I've learned as a reporter and that Wyatt has learned in a more direct fashion, when we shared these things about the border, these DPS officers, at least the two shown there in that photo, they opened up and uh, said that uh, much of what we're saying is true, and the situation is very severe, and to a large extent, they wish the governor, uh, Governor Abbott, would, uh, regardless of what the federal government does, but especially if the federal government is inactive or hostile toward this, they, they wish the state government would step in and repel the invasion. They would like to do so, but their hands are tied. They told us that firsthand. And I've got some other pictures just to share of the visit there. Uh, the next picture is the House of Representatives, uh, pretty sizable. Uh, again, it's the largest Capitol building in the U.S. of all the states except for the U.S. Capitol. That's the House in action on this past Tuesday. And thumbing through the next photo, uh, this is sort of a side issue, but it has some pertinence to the border. There was a large uh, uh, contingent of people wearing these red shirts, ban Democrat chairs, and Texas has an odd tradition in the legislature on the House side where the House Speaker Dade Phelan, D-A-D-E, that's Dade Phelan, P-H-E-L-A-N, he is following this weird tradition, even though he's a Republican, of uh, having the chairman of most or all of the key committees chaired by Democrats. And so many people concerned about the border and many other issues were there to say ban Democrat chairs. They don't like this practice, this so-called tradition. They want it changed because they believe it's harming the machinery of government and constructive things are not getting done. And uh, I have some other pictures to share real briefly. This is the Senate floor in the next frame and the man sticking his arm out to his right talking to the lady in the red scarf. 
is Senator Bob Hall. He is another key legislature, legislator rather that we visited, and we spent considerable considerable time with Mr. Hall as well as Mr. Toth, the uh, state rep I showed earlier. And if if you move on to the next frame, uh, this is Wyatt Watson again of Texas Lives Matter talking to one of uh, Mr. Hall's staffers, and. Uh, as we killed time there uh, talking with that staffer, Senator Hall showed up and um, he showed us this uh, this uh, resolution or this uh, um, proposed bill rather. And we're seeing a screenshot of it. This is Senate Bill number 237. And the main thing that Senator Hall shared with us was that he feels that an interstate compact is needed. So Texas would need to get into a compact with at least one other state. And that's all it would need is Texas plus one. Any more states would be icing on the cake, but just one other state is needed. Oklahoma looks like a prospect, Senator Hall said. Florida looks like another prospect to form this compact. And uh, Wyatt and I and others have been examining that compact. And one of the things that's in there is that it requires the approval of the U.S. Congress. And the people I've been talking to so far as I've been following these border issues for UK Column understand that in Article One, technically, Article One of the U.S. Constitution, when states enter into compacts that they, um, uh, with foreign nations or with one another, that it does require technically the consent of Congress. However, there are some caveats when there are imminent dangers like invasions that take place. So congressional, or excuse me, constitutional interpretation comes to, comes to the fore, and the way the Constitution is interpreted in that regard, would congressional approval really be needed when there's an invasion? In other words, the compact is not just some economic compact, is an open question. So um, this SB number 237, we just got it, we're circulating it, and we're getting a lot of opinions on it. The language is a little vague and ambiguous. There's the question of congressional approval that I just mentioned. Critics believe that'll slow the machinery of, of uh, responding to the border crisis down and slow it down too much. So next week, I hope to have a much more in-depth uh, opinion on SB 237 and Article 1 of the Constitution on whether congressional approval is indeed needed and to answer some other questions regarding this bill. Uh, do you guys have any questions or uh, counterpoint? Uh, well, I just come back and say, Mark, thank you very much for giving us that update. And it, it's really excellent that you're able to get out and about uh, to speak to people. And we're we're going to work to develop this. Um, but my attention was caught by you saying, well, one one of the um, security uh, um, detail one of the security detail locks the gate and along comes another one and unlocks it. And of course, uh, it's a simple thing. But if it's true, and I believe, absolutely believe what you're telling me, um, this is a sign of a country that can't stand because we've now got madness, madness unleashing itself in the United States. We can't go into it now because we're right at the end of the news. But yes, we look forward to you coming back to us on this this subject and we'll certainly do more. OK, David, we're going to end uh, on this one then. And uh, you've got a meme for us. Yes, we've got the elephant in the room, uh, which is marked COVID and vaccine injuries and deaths and is squeezing uh, up against uh, Two people marked BBC and UK government. The BBC is saying, well, ignore them. 
maybe it'll go away. And uh, the UK government saying, ignore who? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Well, we're out, we're absolutely out of time, and it's it's a shame because there's a lot more that we could be discussing around all the key segments of the news today. But I think we should end there. We're going to say a big thank you to our audience, and of course a very big thank you to all of our supporters because we can only do what we do with your financial help. And uh, have we got a video to end on, uh, Mike? Well, look, we're we're pretty much at it. Let's all keep right. it for extra. Okay, we'll save that for extra. So if you're a signed up member. Join us for extra in a few moments and we'll we'll pack in some more information. Yeah. We'll leave it there and we'll say bye-bye for today. Bye-bye.